from enlistment to training to the trenches. How were British soldiers of the Great War brought into the army, made ready for battle, and then sent off to fight along that old front line? While leading a battlefield tour recently, I was asked a question about how long it took from the enlistment of a soldier through his training to be posted overseas to go into the front line, to go into the trenches. So I thought it would be a good idea to do a podcast episode about that, where we'll look at the enlistment of regular soldiers before the war, men of the territorial force, and from the outbreak of the war in 1914, the enlistment of men into Kitchener's army, the new army that was formed then to expand the size of the British army as it was clear that the war was going to progress on beyond that much lauded end of the war in Christmas of 1914. And we'll follow those soldiers from their enlistment through to training, through to the assembly of these men from the different parts of the army, the regulars, the territorials, the volunteers, where they were camped, where they were billeted, where they were trained, and then the process of sending them overseas to be in the front line. And it's a subject that whenever I think about it, whenever I discuss it with groups when I'm out on the ground, on the battlefields of the old front line, I'm mindful of the veterans that I interviewed back in the 80s and 90s and their recollections of their route from civilian to soldier to front line veteran. And we'll no doubt dip in and out of some of their reminiscences of this as well. And so if we begin with the army as it was on the eve of the Great War, on the outbreak perhaps of the Great War on the 4th of August 1914, it consisted of two separate branches. The regular army, the men who were full-time soldiers who had voluntarily enlisted before the war. There was no conscription in Britain until much later in the conflict and Britain's peacetime army was a volunteer one, unlike most of its European counterparts in Belgium and France, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany. These were all vast conscript armies. There was no history of that in Britain. So the regular army, and I've never seen a, an exact figure as to what the size of the regular army was in 1914, but somewhere in the region of about half a million, I would guess, because 270,000 of those would proceed overseas from August 1914 until November 1914 and be awarded the Mon Star. Now, some of those will be territorials, and we'll come on to those shortly, but that gives us kind of rough insight into the regular army of 1914. It was an army that was split between those on home service, home duties, and overseas in the wider British Empire. Its most recent conflicts had been on the northwest frontier of India just a few years before the war and then the Boer War, the second Boer War of 1899 to 1902, a war that was very much in the consciousness of those within the armed services and Britain's regular army contained a very high proportion of men who had served in that conflict. So the regular army was one part of it. The territorial force or what we call today the Territorial Army. They had emerged from the volunteers, and they were the other branch of the armed services. So these were men who were not full-time soldiers. 
they could enlist into a territorial force unit local to them, continue in their normal civilian life and their normal civilian occupation, whatever that was, and then be committed to a certain degree of service within that territorial force unit going forward. And we'll come into the details of that as we look through these areas of the army in 1914 in detail. So the British Army consisted of these regular soldiers, full-time soldiers in active units of the army on home or overseas postings, and then these territorial units that were based within Britain itself. And if we look at those in more detail, the regular army was very much, as I've said, influenced by its experiences in the Boer War. It'd gone through a whole transition of the way it fought conflicts and looked at conflicts since that war had ended. The lessons learned from encountering mounted infantry, the Boers, in that conflict had changed the way, for example, cavalry regiments had been trained and were to be deployed. That cavalry with sabres and lances now also would double as infantry and every man carried a proper short magazine Lee Enfield rifle rather than a cavalry carbine and could be deployed as ground troops, as dismounted troops, as well as on horseback. There were many other lessons besides, and that's probably a subject for a podcast in its own right. But the army reforms, particularly the Haldane reforms in that Edwardian period, had transformed the army, not just in the way it operated, but in the way it was equipped with new uniforms, new webbing equipment, the 1908 pattern webbing equipment, with 10 ammunition pouches carrying 150 rounds of ammunition, a small pack, a large pack, a water bottle, a bayonet frog, an entrenching tool helve carrier and an entrenching tool head carrier on the back of the equipment. It was a very good set of webbing equipment, very well designed and carried the load for the soldier very well indeed. And that plus the implementation of the short magazine Lee Enfield rifle, an improvement on the rifles that had been used in the Boer War, meant that the British soldier of 1914 wearing a green-coloured khaki uniform, carrying a set of well-designed webbing equipment and a very powerful and accurate and modern rifle in his hands, the Lee Enfield, made him a formidable soldier on the battlefield. Generally, regular soldiers enlisted for periods of 12 years, which are normally split between seven and five. Seven years as a regular soldier and then you would leave the regular army, go into Civvy Street, become a civilian once more, go into a trade or occupation, but you'd spend five years on the reserve and could be called up at any time for active service. You'd have to do regular training and drill sessions as part of that as well. So the army would pay you for those five years on top of what you earned as a civilian, and it would then retain your services in case of a conflict. So that was very common. And in some cases, they swapped that round. So some men, for example, who were going to go into the police, did five years as regular soldiers and then seven years on the reserve. Some police forces insisted on men entering them only via regular army service, for example. There was also a category of enlistment called the special reserve within the regular army, which was a little bit like the territorials. You were not committed to full-time service, but you join the regular army, you join the special reserve for six years, a period of six years, and during that time you would be trained, 
you go to drill hall and training sessions and the catch was in time of war you would be called up into the army and some men who had been reservists who'd come off the reserve for their period of reserve could extend that by joining the special reserve so it was another way to continue to get payment from the army even after you'd left but of course the catch always the catch was that you could be called up in time of war and possibly in that so-called golden age of Edwardian Britain golden for some if you lived in big houses perhaps not so golden for ordinary working class people but the thought of perhaps getting money for nothing was an attractive one and no one thought that a conflict like the Great War was just round the corner. You could join the regular army legitimately at age 12. So that was the school leaving age in the Edwardian period. You could go straight from school and become a coal miner, work in a cotton mill or a factory somewhere, and also go into the regular army. And many youngsters did as boy soldiers. That was their rank. And then when they got to 16, they were considered men and they became privates within the regular army. And a lot of young lads who saw no chance of occupations in the areas where they lived or didn't fancy going into the factories or the mines, they followed that route into the regular army in that Edwardian period and enlisted age 12. So that with the recruitment between the Boer War and the First World War, which in most areas was probably down. Very few battalions were at full strength when Britain went to war in 1914. But what Britain did have then was a modern army, a modern army recruited on the county regiment basis. So each area of Britain having regiments associated with it. So if you came from Sussex, you could join the Royal Sussex Regiment. Or if you were from different parts of Yorkshire, you had the East Yorkshire Regiment, the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Greenhouse, the Yorkshire Regiment itself, and the York and Lancaster Regiment as well, the York and Lancs. So in some areas, there was quite a lot of choice. And within Ireland, which of course was one country at the time, Men did join regiments that to a degree were based on their religion, so southern regiments tended to be made up largely of men who were Catholics and northern ones largely men who were Protestants, although there was a lot of intermingling between those two faiths. John Lucy, who wrote the book A Devil in the Drum, remarks how he went from southern Ireland purposefully to join the Royal Irish Rifles because he wanted to, he felt, serve in a regiment where religion wouldn't necessarily be an issue. And if you look at regiments of the wider British Army in that county regiment system, a huge proportion of the men serving in those regiments were from Ireland. So a lot of men from Ireland came across to the mainland and joined regiments there, or perhaps could enlist in places like Dublin or Belfast and select to enlist in a particular regiment that wasn't necessarily based in Ireland. And this meant that the contribution of men from Ireland to the wider history and service and deeds of the British Army in that opening period of the war and indeed throughout the Great War was immense. These regular regiments normally had three battalions. The first and the second would be posted on either home duty or overseas duty to South Africa or India or Burma or wherever it was. And the third would be a reserve battalion that would send replacements to them and train up those special reservists. And that brings us on to the territorial force, which was formed out of the volunteers in April of 1908 to create a part of the British Army 
that could be used for home service. The idea was in time of war, the units of the regular army that were based in barracks across Britain that were on home duty could be released, posted overseas, and the territorials would take their place. In time of war, perhaps it would be needed to guard railway junctions, main stations, ports, coastal areas, and rather than use regular soldiers, fully trained soldiers to do that, that could be employed on the battlefront, you had the territorials to do that instead. So the expansion along a county regiment's line, so each county regiment forming territorial battalions, that was done to create this supplementary army that would stand behind the main regular army itself. They were part-time soldiers, often referred to disparagingly as Saturday night soldiers because Saturday night was the night they would often meet at their drill halls to do their training. And when men joined the territorial force, the TF, they joined for periods of four years. You signed up, you did four years, you could renew those four years. And what was interesting is that you were on a fixed period of enlistment. So whereas regulars signed up for 12 years and had to either do a period as regulars or reservists, the territorials signed up for four-year periods. So if you joined up in 1908, you went through to 1912. If you re-enlisted again in 1912, you did another four years, and that brought you to 1916. Now, 1916 was the cusp between volunteers, a volunteer army, and the creation of a conscript army by introducing conscription. And these men who had joined up for these four-year periods in 1916 actually, unbelievably, had the choice of remaining in the army because of the conditions of their enlistment or leaving it, and some did. I did some research on the local battalion here in South Yorkshire, the 1st, 5th York and Lanx, which was comprised of a lot of miners, and quite a few of those took their discharge when their termination of engagement came around the end of their four-year period of enlistment so these are men who had joined back in 1912 when that ended in 1916 they simply left the army so one day they were in the trenches their termination of engagement is coming up they're taken out of the trenches sent home and they're discharged and there's nothing that the army could do about this and in many cases, these men did this because going back into the pits then, wages were quite high, they could earn more money, and their chances of surviving perhaps were going to be greater as well. And it doesn't appear that that many of them were then reconscripted later on in the period of the Great War because they were doing an occupation that was vital to war work, although miners were not protected in the First World War in the same way that they were in the Second. The Territorial Force had mixed success in the way it recruited its men. Some battalions that should have been a thousand officers and men were only a few hundred when the First World War broke out. In other areas, the recruitment was very successful and was highly driven, with some battalions even charging a joining fee to basically create socially elite units. The Artist Rifles in London, the 28th London Regiment and the 14th Battalion London Regiment, the London Scottish, were two units that did this. They charged an entry fee that was paid to the regiment or the battalion, not to the commanding officer, it didn't go in his back pocket, and it was used to create funds to equip the unit. So in the London Scottish, for example, rather than have substandard equipment, they all had the latest 1908 pattern webbing gear and they had short magazine Lee Enfield rifles when most territorial units 
had the old Boer War ones. And that's an interesting aside to this, is that the creation of a territorial force meant that there wasn't really enough of the modern equipment to go around for every single man in the regular army and the territorials as well. So when you look at some of the pre-war photographs, camp photographs of territorial units, they're wearing a mixture of different types of webbing. Sometimes they don't have complete sets of pouches, only one set of pouch on one side and a strap coming across. They have the Longley Enfield rifles that were used in the Boer War, the older pattern bayonets. Sometimes they wear older pieces of leather equipment, occasionally even dating back to 19th century gear that was available to issue to them. So it wasn't as consistent, the supply of equipment and materiel to equip these battalions as it was within the regular army. That was the standard, that was what you were trying to achieve, and the money from the Liberal government of the period just wasn't available to the War Office to equip the army, perhaps in the way that it wanted to do, and this was the compromise. If the regular army had three battalions, the 1st and the 2nd battalions on overseas or home duty in the third reserve one as we mentioned in the territorials they were usually the fourth and the fifth sometimes the sixth seventh or eighth battalions as well depending on the size of that regiment Lancashire Fusiliers and the Manchester Regiment come to mind both of which had quite a number of territorial battalions recruited in those wider areas but a typical county regiment like the Royal Sussex Regiment for example had a 4th Battalion recruited in what was largely West Sussex, and a 5th Battalion, the Sink Ports, recruited in what was largely then East, the East Sussex area. So when war broke out in August 1914, the Territorial Battalions, the regular battalions, could all be mobilised for war. Within the Territorial Force in 1912, they'd introduced the Imperial Service Obligation, where you could sign up to be posted overseas in time of war, which meant those territorial battalions could now be used to, for example, free up regular battalions who were in garrisons like Malta or Gibraltar or even India. But the Secretary of State for War, who was Lord Kitchener, looked at the size of the regular army, the size of the territorial force. He looked at the propaganda of the period, as we've mentioned, this much lauded phrase, the war would be over by Christmas. But he realised that this could easily become a long and protracted conflict and that Britain's regular and territorial force could not survive that war if we just relied on them, that casualties would be so high that they would quickly dwindle away. So he came up with the idea of forming a new army, which in the press quickly became Kitchener's army, and the first battalions were raised in August of 1914, just a few weeks after the outbreak of war, but the bulk began to be recruited from September 1914 onwards, when those posters of Kitchener pointing at you, enticing you to enlist for king and country, were displayed right across Great Britain. And what we see is a massive, massive reaction to this, looking at the fate of Belgium overrun by German forces, Britain having gone to war to protect gallant little Belgium, a neutral country. People were outraged. The Victorian period had very much bred an idea of service, of the importance of king, country and empire, and men stepped forward. And some of the early Kitchener battalions were raised in August 1914. The 7th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, for example, advertised only a week or so after the outbreak of the conflict 
and set up their recruiting office at the regimental barracks in Chichester and were completely overwhelmed. They had an entire battalion recruited in a single day. So it was clear that there was not just a need for this new army, there was a desire for men to step forward and join it. And when they joined it, they joined for a specific enlistment period. We've heard the regulars joined up for 12 years, the territorials four years, and these men enlisted for three years or the duration of war, whichever was longer. And some of the veterans that I knew often referred to themselves as duration men, that they were there for the duration of the war, however long that may be. And of course, in 1914, they wouldn't have had a clue as to just how long that conflict could be. So what was the process of enlistment? Pre-war, men could go to local recruitment offices or depots or barracks and join regiments there. As they were voluntarily enlisting, they could go to a local town or city. And although that might be in a particular county, they weren't necessarily required to join that particular regiment. They could elect to join whichever branch of the army they wished And across the rest of Britain, where the territorial battalions were located, they had drill halls, normally one drill hall per company of that battalion, and you could go along to your local drill hall and you could join the territorial force, your local battalion, your local unit there. When the new army was created, recruitment offices were opened right across Great Britain. In some places, they used the local town hall as the recruitment point and recruitment committees were set up to bring the men in and create local battalions within whatever was the county regiment. So just up the road from me in Barnsley, they recruited men there to join the York and Lancaster Regiment into what became known as the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the Barnsley Pals. When they joined up, they were given a king shilling as bounty for their enlistment, And it was said that the recruiting sergeants who enlist them got a shilling as well. If that was true and they recruited 100 men in a day, well, then they did pretty well out of it. And when you went forward to enlist under these circumstances, and this was a a tale that many, many veterans told me, you were marched in and you were asked a number of questions. How old you were was one of them. And if you looked young, they would look at you quite closely under those circumstances. Men did not carry the same kind of papers that we carry with us now. And there was no easy way to check a man's date of birth. And largely, if a soldier, potential soldier, said that he was 18, he got in, unless he was obviously so young that he needed to be precluded from army service. And when we look at the work of authors like Richard Van Emden and his work on boy soldiers of the Great War, we see that hundreds of thousands of young men enlisted under the required age of that period. So the army was full of these teenage Tommies. You filled in what was called an attestation form when you enlisted, or the recruiting officer or sergeant in front of you filled it in and you dictated the information. And it asked you a number of questions who you were, when you were born, where you were born, what your trade or occupation was, and if you'd served previously. And what's quite interesting when you look at some of these attestation forms, and they are in the surviving service records on sites like Ancestry and Find My Past, you can see that some men exaggerated or even lied about previous military service. There was no easy way of checking it, they they probably figured, 
and there wasn't really at that particular time and they thought it probably gave them the added impetus for the army to accept them because if they'd served before then this was going to be a quicker route into the army and therefore a guaranteed acceptance as an enlistee into the Kitchener's army, into the new army. In addition, you were then medically examined and there were conditions of physical fitness if you had heart palpitations or if you had physical deformities that would obviously exclude you from service. They examined men's teeth because men were required on active service to eat hardtack biscuits. We discussed the food of the Great War in a previous podcast episode and these hardtack biscuits were like concrete and often needed smashing up with the rifle butts to mix with bully beef and water to make this kind of sloppy paste. But because men were issued with hardtack, when they were on active services, emergency rations, you needed decent teeth to be able to bite into them. And if you didn't have good teeth, then the army would reject you. So a lot of men were kicked out or not accepted because their teeth were so bad and also because the army didn't want to take on the responsibility of the dentistry of an entire generation of people for which there was no easy access to dentistry in civilian life. So this was the army, how the army was broken down. This is how men enlisted and joined the army and for what periods at this point in the war. But what were the reasons, particularly with volunteers, what were the reasons that men enlisted? And I'll give you a few examples from different parts of the army. So George Butler, I've mentioned him a few times on this podcast. He was a veteran that I interviewed down at Gifford House in Worthing, pre-war regular soldier, had left school and gone into the army at 12. For him, it was a decision made because of his social circumstances. He'd not got on with his stepmother. His mother had died when he was young. He walked out of the family home, he lived on the streets of Manchester as a beggar for almost a year, was covered in dirt and filth, and he used to sleep in the cabs of steam trains at Manchester Piccadilly Station at night because that was the warmest place to sleep. And one of the engine drivers, a former regular soldier, said, listen, lad, why don't you just join the army? They'll put clothes on your back, food in your stomach, and they'll send you all around the world. So he marched up the road to Bury in 1910, age 12, and joined the Lancashire Fusiliers. So for him, and this was probably true of many men who joined the regular army, it was social circumstances that was the impetus to get them into an occupation for which they would be given food and money in a way perhaps was not so easy in civilian life. And a lot of my great uncles who'd worked on the land or on the rivers of Essex before the First World War, my grandmother's cousins who she remembered so fondly when I was a kid, They all had suffered periods of great unemployment in that supposed wonderful Edwardian period and they had then marched up the road to Chelmsford and joined the Essex Regiment as regular soldiers. So poverty, circumstances, lack of work were all reasons why men joined the regular army. Graham Williams was from a a middle-class London family. He served as a rifleman in the London Rifle Brigade, he would go on to take part in the Christmas Truce of 1914. He was one of several men that I interviewed who took part in that truce. He appears in one of the documentaries about it, A Peace in No Man's Land. And he served with the 5th Battalion London Regiment, London Rifle Brigade. He lived in quite a comfortable middle-class household. He felt a responsibility to Britain 
and that the Territorials was a kind of a youth club, really, for him. He was quite a young soldier when he joined it. You could join the Territorials at 17 before the war. And for him, then working as a young man in London, this was a way of having a social life outside of his work environment with a group of very different kind of men. And he felt a responsibility to Britain, who he felt had given him a lot, and if he could do something, if Britain ever required him, by being a territorial with the London Rifle Brigade, he could do his bit. Albert Bamfield joined the 13th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, with his brother Marcus in early 1915. He hadn't joined in the first rush for recruits. There were three South Downs battalions formed in Sussex, the 11th, 12th and eventually the 13th. And he'd held back simply because both him and his brother had pretty good jobs in Hove and they stayed doing those jobs until they felt that that, for them, was selfish, was too selfish, that this was a point in which Britain required them. The much-lauded phrase, which we've mentioned quite a few times, over by Christmas, it hadn't happened. Christmas had come and gone. It was clear that the war would continue. And men like the Banfield brothers felt that now this compelled them, now this was their moment in which they should step forward and join and do their bit. So they'd not rushed into that kind of popular, fervent desire to serve in 1914. They'd witnessed it in their own town. They'd seen men in khaki marching up on the South Downs, but they'd held back because they weren't so sure that the war would really continue. But when it was, that was when they felt that it was time for them to be in it as well. Albert Chesters, who lived in Wrexham, I went up there a few times to go and interview him. He was a coal miner. He too had left school at 12, not gone into the army, but gone into the local pit. And he'd worked there alongside his brother and his father, both of whom had been killed in a pit accident before the war. It was a dirty, grimy, hard, tough and dangerous job for anyone. And for him, when the war broke out, what impelled him to enlist was, again, not necessarily a, a patriotic fervour or a patriotic desire to serve for king and country. It was more of an opportunity to leave that occupation behind for a little while. He figured that if it was true that the war would be over by Christmas, he could join up, do a few months in the open air, march and be fed and learn some new skills perhaps even go to one of these garrisons that required occupation to free up the regular army to Malta or Gibraltar or somewhere like that. And then when it was all over, he'd come home and he'd go back down the pit. That was what he thought. For him, it would be a long war and results in a debilitating injury in the Battle of Mamet's Wood in July of 1916. And having never picked up a rifle or served or done anything to do with the military at all before the war, he found that when he did join up, he was a natural soldier, and that when they put a rifle in his hands, he was a natural crack shot, and he eventually became a battalion sniper. And then Malcolm Vivian, he was from quite a wealthy family. His mother was American. They had a very productive and valuable family business, which he could go on to work in. He's been educated at private school and then he went to Cambridge where he was on the outbreak of war and for him it was not even 
a conscious decision to have to think about enlistment. When the war came and Britain required men to serve, it was his duty. It was bred inside him from family to school to university to set an example, to lead by example. And the response to the war office to Lord Kitchener calling for volunteers, it was something that required no effort of thought. It was as if, really, for him, his whole life had destined him to take this path. So that's what compelled some of the veterans that I interviewed to join up in that early phase of the war. There were many other reasons why people did this. There were some who were patriotic, believed in the concept of duty, of empire, of king and country. And the sense of duty for that generation was very, very strong indeed. But for others, there were, just like joining the regular army or the territorials, there were practical reasons. Poverty. The army offered you food, clothing and a place to sleep, a place to live. And it wasn't just those who were down on their luck or without employment in 1914. There were men who had large families and the army not just gave you money for yourself, but it gave you separation allowances. It gave you allowances towards your children, things like that. I mean, small and modest amounts compared to what we might think of today, but enough to tip some older men who were in their 30s, even their 40s, who had big families, 10 or 12 children, this was a reason why they might enlist, because the army offered them so much from a financial point of view, as well as their own personal desire to serve and do their bit. So we've looked at enlistment, and now we'll move on to, once these men were enlisted, how were they trained? The next phase of service for a soldier from enlistment was training, taking the civilian and creating a soldier from him. Within the regular army before the war, that was done at their local barracks or at their depot. And so the size of the army and its infrastructure built up over long periods with barracks and depots and facilities all across Britain meant that they were pretty much fit for purpose for the level of recruits that would come in in that period before the war. Within the territorial force, they had local drill halls and territorial battalions before the war were comprised of eight companies which were recruited on a localised basis and those companies would then have drill halls in the areas where they recruited. Sometimes some companies shared a drill hall but generally each company had its own drill hall where it recruited and trained its soldiers and mobilised them in case of war. So with the local territorial battalion to me here in South Yorkshire, the 1st, 5th York and Lanks, they were recruited between Barnsley and Rotherham and their eight companies had drill halls in places like Rotherham, Woonwell, Hoyland, which was the local one to me here, which had men from Hoyland and Elsica in it, and also men from Birdwell, and their drill hall was in Birdwell, and that still survives, one of the few surviving drill halls in this area. So they became their own kind of little mini units. A territorial company at full strength was just over 120 officers and men, so they're quite small. 
locally recruited. These men know each other. In the case of the 1st, 5th York and Lanx, the companies were often recruited near to where there were collieries and these men worked as miners together. A very high proportion of the men who joined this battalion before the Great War were miners. Not all of them, but most of them were from the research that I've done on that battalion. So that's kind of one example. So territorials were trained locally in their drill halls and then once a year they'd also have an annual camp when they were sent somewhere so the local battalions here often went across to wales for example for their annual camp over there but then bringing the new army in august and september of 1914 into the mix created big problems for the war office big problems for the army in dealing with this influx of recruits how do you then train them where do they sleep? Where are their billets? There are a lot of barracks, a lot of drill halls across Britain, but they're already being used. They're not sufficient to take in hundreds of thousands of men. Kitchener had called for 100,000 volunteers in 1914, but by the end of that year, he had a million. So the size of the army grew and grew to a point, well, almost a breaking point, really, in terms of its ability to actually cope with this influx of recruits and it totally outstripped the facilities in terms of physical buildings to put these men in. So while in Sussex the 7th Royal Sussex was raised pretty early on and could be contained and billeted within the barracks at Chichester when it came to raising the other Sussex battalions there was nowhere for them to be billeted. So the South Downs battalions of the Royal Sussex Regiment, they went into a camp at Cooden, which was ground acquired for them by their founder, by their commanding officer, Claude Lowther MP, who got this ground at Cooden on the Sussex coast, acquired a large number of tents of all kinds of shapes and sizes, and the men initially slept in those. Eventually, he would get wooden barrack huts via the army, companies across Britain operated to construct and build and place these barrack huts in new sites where army camps were constructed and it must have been a pretty lucrative business to have been in at this time providing all these army huts and of course if you go on social media you'll find Great War Huts which is Taff Gillingham and his fantastic team preserving the surviving examples and telling us much more about how they were constructed and Put in place, and we have a previous podcast episode where Taff came on to tell us all about that. In many respects, a lot of these localized, locally raised units became small private armies overseen by the committee or the individual that had formed them. Claude Lowther with the South Downs, Lord Derby with the Liverpool Pals, who paid for the raising of the battalions, paid for their training, paid for their billets and uniforms, equipment everything until the war office eventually took over and in some cases it could take nearly a year before the war office to officially step in and take over the complete running of these individually raised battalions these small private armies and housing them was not the only problem as we hinted at with the story of Lord Derby he provided the uniforms and equipment of the Liverpool Pals because a lot of these Kitchener volunteers when they first went in There were no uniforms at all. The huge number of enlistments had completely outstripped the ability of the army to clothe them. So when I look through the postcards that I have 
of Kitchener's army units in the first few weeks of their formation, we see the vast majority of men are in their civilian clothes. There are photographs of the Sheffield City Battalion men standing on the football grounds in Sheffield, for example. The South Downs at Cooden, they're all in civvies. Men marching down streets and not a thing on them to indicate that they're soldiers. In some areas, they created little card badges for them to wear to prove that they joined the army or armbands with the details of the unit that they enlisted in so that they didn't have young men and women coming up to them and giving them white feathers because it looked as if they hadn't joined the army when they had. It was just that the army didn't have a uniform to give them. So an interim uniform was created, the so-called Kitchener's Blues, which was a very basic copy of the 1902 pattern tunic, service dress tunic that the soldiers wore with a pair of trousers. It was this dark blue serge, which many of them felt looked like a prison outfit. And there were variations on caps, side caps, peak caps. Again, when I look at the photographs I have of the South Downs battalions, they wear a whole variety of headgear. Very few cap badges were available. So some men wear shoulder titles or collar badges, sometimes Victorian period collar badges, whatever badge they could get so they could proudly display at least some insignia from the unit that they'd joined. And again, going back to the case of Lord Derby, he paid for the production of cap badges for all the men in the unit. They were officially part of the King's Liverpool Regiment. His cap badge was the White Horse of Hanover, and he had over 4,000 badges struck in silver with the coat of arms of the Derby family, a liver bird swooping over a child in a cradle. So it meant that the creation of this new army, there was this huge variation in what they looked like. Some bits of green khaki, some bits of the blue serge, the Kitchener's blues, civilian clothing the odd cap, a strange variety of insignia, weapons from a few Lee-Enfields down to some really antiquated firearms. I've seen photographs of men with Martini Henry rifles, the breech-loading rifles that were used in the Zulu War, for example, which were completely outdated bits of kit by the time of 1914. And in some units there were no weapons at all, so men had wooden prop guns, fake guns made out of wood so at least they could shoulder arms and march around with something that vaguely looked and felt like a rifle or was at least the shape of it so this was how bad it was in those early months of the formation of this new army a great idea a huge influx of men a perfect storm coming together to create this big problem for the war office in training and equipping these men in preparation for war and in that year from their formation through to being taken over by the war office, you see a change in this with the provision of khaki, the provision of personal equipment, the provision of rifles. A lot of Kitchener's battalions had long Lee-Enfield rifles, a bit like some of the territorial battalions. They didn't all have Lee-Enfields when they first went overseas. And there was not enough webbing equipment to go around, so a leather set of equipment was manufactured. The 1914 leather pattern equipment, which was a leather belt with a snake buckle, two leather straps, two ammunition pouches, bayonet frog in leather, and the straps to carry the entrenching tool handle, and then a pouch at the back to carry the entrenching tool blade, and a carrier for the water bottle. It was a cheap substitute to the webbing, not as well designed, and not as popular amongst the men who actually had to wear it, particularly if they had to wear it overseas. And you see men getting rid of it as soon as they can once they're on active service. 
although it continued and remained in use right up until the end of the conflict. You see it in photographs from the last few weeks of the war being worn by men right on the front line. So they've got the men in the army, they're beginning to equip them, finding places for them to sleep, whether that's a bell tent or a wooden shack or an army barracks, whatever it is. What was a typical training day? And we've got an insight into this in one of Peter Doyle's excellent books about the British Army in the First World War, and we'll put some links to Peter's books onto the podcast website because they're a great, great addition to this podcast and will give you a lot of insight into this aspect of the British Army in the Great War. So typical training day. 06.30, that's Ravalli, bugle sound, it's time to get up, and you're given 15 minutes to get on parade, which is at 6.45. The whole battalion were then parade by company, inspected by the commanding officer and the regimental sergeant major, the individual company commander standing out front, so you've got to be up and ready, dressed, looking soldierly, looking presentable, straight out in front of the battalion commander, to be on parade on the parade ground, whatever that was, a grass field or an actual parade ground. And then after that, there would be breakfast at 7 o'clock, where you go to a mess tent or a mess hall or a building to be fed, probably company by company, platoon by platoon, section by section. That lasted until 8.15, when the company officers then had a secondary parade and they get their individual companies on parade and give them their orders or what their training schedule was for the course of that day. And then at 11.15, they would do Swedish drill, and this was physical fitness, basically, ways to get the men fit, keep them fit, keep them occupied, because it's a citizen army, particularly with a new army, you're bringing men in straight off Civvy Street, they're not as fit as regular soldiers, and they need training, physical training in that respect. So that was a big part of their curriculum, particularly in the early days of their service in the army. Then at one o'clock they get dinner, sounds great, doesn't it? Breakfast, an hour and a bit for breakfast, hour and a bit for dinner, but these aren't leisurely meals, it's kind of slops in a mess tin, and off you go. And then at 2.15, you've got rifle drill, where men are trained to use their weapon again. Civilian soldiers, they need training in the weapons that are part of their army service, whether that's rifles or later machine guns. And then at 3.15, there'd be an lecture by an officer. It would be an officer of the day or an officer selected by a company or perhaps the battalion commander to give a lecture on a particular aspect of the war, the conduct of the war, what was happening at the front line, or perhaps a new training procedure or a new type of equipment or weapon. Particularly once the war went static, men had to be briefed on grenades, on trench warfare, on machine guns, on gas when that became part of the battlefield. So these lectures were incredibly important. Then at half past four, they'd be dismissed from that, go straight into tea, and then from six o'clock to ten o'clock, they would have free time. Now, that didn't mean necessarily they could walk out of the camp into the local town, although that was sometimes permitted. It could mean they just stayed within the barracks, within their barrack hut, within their tent, whatever it was, and sat and talked and chatted with their friends. But then at ten o'clock, it was the last post, the end of the day, and at 10.15, lights out, and that was it, until you woke up 6.30 the next day and started that process all over again. Now, that's a kind of brief run-through, a fictitious run-through of a typical kind of training process, but probably not untypical of the experience of men in that early period of the war. And for many of them, it was quite a rude shock because they were not used to living 
quite in such a regimented, structured, organised day. Now, if they'd worked in factories or in mines, perhaps they would have a better kind of understanding or experience of this. But if you were an office worker or an agricultural worker, you probably had a lot more freedom in the way that you did things or your life wasn't quite as regimented. So it was a bit of a shock to the system. And some men found this difficult. And some with money in their pocket and having access to booze, to to beer, got drunk and didn't understand the parameters of having to be within a camp at a certain time. So you see a lot of men in the early phase of their service being crimed for drunkenness, late on parade or whatever it is. This is all part, I guess, of how the civilian adjusts to being no longer a civilian, no longer an individual, but part of a wider army. And then for the infantry, the training process of 1914, the one that the army went to war with, was comprised of 11 different steps from the development of soldierly spirits, understanding that you were now a soldier, not a civilian, not an individual, but part of this greater organisation with responsibilities to the men that you serve with and what that meant in terms of your duty and purpose. Instruction on barrack and camp duties, how to behave, what was expected of you, not to infringe certain boundaries while you were serving in those locations and to respect the timings of your day as we've outlined with that semi-fictitious itinerary for a typical training day. And then physical training to develop you. Many of these men living in polluted, industrialised cities, perhaps they'd not developed in the same way as those who'd worked in the open land of the fields of Great Britain, of England. They needed a lot of physical training, which would then move on into infantry training, where they'd teach you how to be an infantry soldier, what that meant, how you advanced, small unit tactics within your section and your platoon and your company. There was a lot of marching and running, again, partly to build up physical fitness, but also get men accustomed to the idea that they would have to use their legs, use their feet to march and run and move from one location to another when on active service. They wouldn't be scooped up, put in the back of a truck or a train necessarily, and moved from A to B. It would require them marching, something that they would look back on and think that the what seemed difficult marches, you know, in the open lanes, country lanes of Britain, were actually a picnic compared to marching down the cobbled pavé of the roads of France and Flanders. And then musketry instruction, learning how to use and fire and be accurate with your weapon was part of it. You'd be taught movements at night, how to put on guards and outposts to protect your position when you were on the battlefield and then given instruction and what was required of a soldier in the field on active service, taught how to use your entrenching equipment, the entrenching tool that you carried in your webbing or your leather equipment, and then the other tools, shovels and picks that the army used, so you knew how to dig trenches, you knew how to dig a shell scrape, a funk hole as it became known on active service, for you to get into to protect yourself while you were there on the battlefield. All of that had to be learned. And then there would be bayonet fighting as well, the teaching of how to use the bayonet, the spirit of the bayonet, as it was often referred to, where men were required to run with bayonets fixed at sacks of straws hanging from frames and bayonet an imaginary enemy with a sergeant major shouting at you all the time. All part of this was how they inculcated civilians to become fighting men on the front line. 
And the rifle training that we mentioned was obviously a big part of it. Before the war, a lot of effort had been put into training men so that men were required to fire a minimum of 15 rounds a minute. They would get proficiency pay for that to increase their wages while in the army. Some men could fire a lot more than 15 rounds a minute. But that took a lot of time to train men up to that ability. In the territorials, the level of musketry was nothing like the regular army. It was reasonably good, and of course there'd been time before the war with drill halls and annual camps to train men up and how to shoot. But the big problem with the new army was this influx of men who'd never handled weapons before suddenly were given those weapons. There was a limited amount of ammunition available, and so many men went to France, went to Gallipoli, wherever it was, having only fired a small number of rounds from their rifle and having only achieved a certain level of ability in musketry in the ability to fire their weapon. And as the war went on, that became more and more difficult to achieve. And with your training within your platoon, within your company and your battalion, when your battalion then became part of a brigade, brigade had four infantry battalions in it, and then that brigade was part of a division, you started to do more training where you cooperated with other battalions within your brigade and then with other brigades within your division and sometimes even divisional manoeuvres on places like Salisbury Plain where men trained to operate as part of a large coherent force. So with all this training going on, when would men be ready to be committed to the front? Now, the regulars, of course, were trained. The reservists, whether reservists or special reservists, had also received training and didn't require any further training before they were posted overseas following the declaration of war in August 1914. And if you look at the typical battalion that went overseas at that time, about two-thirds of it were regulars and a third were reservists. Sometimes it could be only a third were regulars and two-thirds were reservists. So these were men who had come from Civvy Street straight back in uniform, straight onto active service, and they would go out and within weeks of arriving in France, they could be fighting at Mons or on the Marne or on the Aisne or in the first Battle of Ypres. And as those units then suffered casualties, the reservists were then sent out as replacements, and they too would often have a quick turnaround from coming into the army, going to the depot, adjusting to army life again, and then being sent straight out to the front. In territorial units, the only men that were sent overseas in 1914 were those who had signed the Territorial Force Imperial Service Obligation, which allowed them to be posted overseas. They got additional money for that and a silver badge that they wore on their uniform. Some battalions made it a requirement of enlistment in that unit that you had to sign up for Imperial Service. So in 1914, there were a number of battalions, men like the Liverpool Scottish, the London Scottish, the Queen Victoria Rifles, the Honourable Artillery Company and so many others who had a high proportion or all of their personnel signed up for Imperial Service and they were then posted overseas. And in one case, an entire territorial division, the 42nd East Lancashire Division, was sent straight out to Egypt in 1914 because its battalions of the Lancashire Fusiliers and the Manchester Regiment all had very high numbers of men who had signed that Imperial Service obligation and the whole division could then be posted overseas. They were the first territorial force division as a whole to be sent on active service in the Great War, not to a theatre of war, but to go to Egypt to take over the British Army facilities there to relieve regular battalions who were there on Empire duty in that part of Egypt. 
so those men could be employed directly, whereas the new army being formed in August and September of 1914, it took months for those men to be ready for active service. Those from the first 100,000, the first 100,000 men who enlisted from that original call by Lord Kitchener, began to be sent overseas in the spring and early summer of 1915, April and May of that year. And that's less than nine months from their original enlistment, which, considering how long it took to train up regular soldiers before the war, nine months to recruit and train and get ready for active service, an entire army was pretty good going. And so we see that men were now enlisted, they were trained. What was their journey now? To the front line. So we've gone from enlistment to training and now we're heading to the trenches, we're heading to the battlefield. And the regular army in 1914 that was employed as part of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, consisted of what became known as the first seven divisions. These were the first seven divisions to see combat on the Western Front in that opening phase of the Great War. Initially, four infantry divisions, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th, who were sent over from August 1914 onwards. Some of those would take parts in the Battle of Mons, some in the retreat from Mons. Two divisions would then follow up behind, the 5th and the 6th Division, and then all of those would take part in the fighting on the Marne and the Aisne in September and October of 1914. The 7th Division was made up of battalions from units of the British Army that were in those far-flung corners of the Empire that were relieved by territorial troops, for example, came back to Britain, formed into this new division. That went to Zeebrugge in October 1914 and then marched down to take part in the First Battle of Ypres. So those first seven divisions were the ones that saw combat from the opening shots of the war at Mons through to the end of the First Battle of Ypres in November of 1914. They were joined by another regular division, the 8th, who arrived too late for the First Battle of Ypres and then served in that cold winter of 1914-15 on the front line just in northern France on the borders with Belgium. And then again with other battalions of other regiments that were on Empire duty brought back to Britain in 1914. They were formed into a further three regular divisions, the 27th and the 28th, that went to France and served predominantly in the Second Battle of Ypres in April and May of 1915, and also the 29th Division, that rather than being sent to France, would be sent to Gallipoli, where they would land at Cape Hellas on the 25th of April 1915 and take part in the operations there. The purpose of most territorial divisions, formations, battalions, whatever they were, were to guard places in Britain or relieve, if they'd signed the Imperial Service obligation, relieve units overseas. And that's what their purpose was in that early phase of the war. Although very quickly they got dragged into the fighting with the London Scottish, the 14th London Regiment being the first territorial infantry battalion to see action at the Great War at Messines in October of 1914. As the new army was training, the Territorials were not just on home duty, they were now on the front line, often attached to regular divisions or formations. There was that entire division, the 42nd East Lanks Division in Egypt, 
and then other units were sent to places like Malta and Gibraltar to free up units there and a large number of territorial sent to India to garrison locations within India and up towards the northwest frontier again to release the regular forces to come to the main theatre of war which was France and Flanders in that early stage of the conflict. But gradually the new army was trained and as we've mentioned was sent overseas from that spring of 1915 onwards and it would go on active service to see its first battles not just in France and Flanders, in fact the first use of Kitchener battalions in action was at Suvla Bay at Gallipoli in August of 1915. That was their first battle of the Great War, their first battle on the Western Front as a wider formation as entire Kitchener divisions was the Battle of Luz in September of 1915. So what we see through the enlistment and training of these different strands of the army is how the army evolves in that early period of the conflict from a pre-war regular army volunteer-based force supplemented by volunteer territorials being used to go overseas to relieve troops on empire duty and gradually the men, the Saturday night soldiers, those disparaged soldiers recruited before the war, they too are the ones that take on the mantle of service as the regular army, that red little dead little army as one writer called it in 1914 as it disappears as Kitchener had predicted on the battlefields with heavy losses. The territorials take on that mantle into the fight of 1915 and then as they dwindle away in the battles of Neuve Chapelle and Albers Ridge and Festibut and towards the Battle of Luz, it is the new army that takes on the mantle and they continue that sacrifice and service through to the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And it's a period in which their training, their very basic training in some respects that they'd received in Britain, is supplemented by training within the theatre of war, the creation of training schools and army schools and battle schools in the depots, whether at Rouen or later on at Etaples, enables men to learn more about what is required of them on active service and the weapons and equipment from machine guns to gas masks that will need to be soldiers on the front line. And the army learns too in the deployment of these troops that when they have low numbers in the early period of the war, some units do long periods of active service. 2nd Battalion Manchester Regiment did 85 consecutive days in the front line, which almost entirely wiped it out, not in terms of casualties, but in its ability to function as a coherent unit. So the army learns, and this whole idea of rest and rotation that we've discussed in previous episodes on trench warfare, where men do periods in the front line, periods on rest, periods back in the front line, becomes more and more commonplace as the war progresses. And the size of the army, particularly on the Western Front, grows. This then results in the British Army taking over longer and longer sections of the front, holding only 20 to 30 miles in the early phase of the conflict through to over 100 miles of the front by the time of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And by the end of the Great War, this becomes the biggest British army that Britain has ever sent to war, something that I don't think everyone entirely realises when it comes to the First World War. No British army has ever been bigger either before or since. But when we look at this subject of training to trenches, enlistment, training, service in the front line, we're really looking at an earlier period of the war, 1914 on into 1915. The army 
everything changes in 1916. That defining moment with the Battle of the Somme that changes not just the army, but perhaps Britain forever. The volunteers, for whatever reason, have dried up by the time of the Somme. Conscription is now part of how Britain brings men in to the armed services, and those conscripts begin to arrive on the battlefield towards the end of the Battle of the Somme, some of the first going over the top in the fighting on the Ancre in November of 1916. After that, the army was never the same again. It was a mass conscript army, men conscripted from 18 to 55, volunteers no more, compelled to go. But this journey from training to trenches is what took those men to the battlefields of the Great War, whether the open plains of Suvla, the deserts of Palestine, or the mud and the blood and the barbed wire of the Western Front in France and Flanders. This was their journey to the battlefield, their journey to that ground that would become the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.